0: Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, and reading from verse 1 down to verse number 12. So please open your Bibles and let us read these verses. Let us hear the Word of God. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we end there, we know that God will bless the reading of this word to all of our hearts for his own name's sake and for His glory. Heavenly Father and our eternal God, we thank Thee that Thou art the one who knows our hearts and who knows our needs, and we lift up our dear brother to Thee who is with us here tonight. We ask again for him that Thou wilt grant him the comfort and the consolation of the gospel in his time of sadness and sorrow. We pray that Thou wilt strengthen his soul. And Thou wilt be with him and bless him here in the homeland for these couple of weeks. And then as he goes back again to take up his ministry there in Pennsylvania, be with him, O Lord, we pray, and bless him. And O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt bless the word to which we now turn. May we have help from heaven and know the power and the presence of the Spirit and know Thee coming among us and visiting us in a very real and powerful way. So abide with us, O Lord. And give help tonight, speak on to souls, deal with sinners in mercy, and open up the eyes of their understanding, and may they be drawn to Thy Son, to the one in whom redemption is found, peace with God, the forgiveness of sins. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, and for His eternal praise and glory, amen, amen. So we turn to Matthew 3. And tonight I want to focus your minds on two of these verses I read with you, verses 11 and 12, where we have John the Baptist speak. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as such he fulfilled a a vitally important role, which was to prepare the way for the Messiah to come and to enter into and execute his own ministry. That work of preparing the way for the Lord, therefore, was no frivolous enterprise. It was a ministry of the greatest magnitude, and we might even say as well, of the greatest excellence. What a ministry, though brief, John the Baptist had as he prepared the way for the Lord. His role was quickly fulfilled and was then eclipsed by the ministry of the Saviour, and yet, there is rich biblical testimony to the wondrous nature of the work that John the Baptist was sent to do. In the Old Testament, prophets like Isaiah and Malachi set down very clear predictions of the forerunner's ministry. And then in the New Testament, all four gospel writers gave attention to John and, who, and they pay testimony to the illustrious nature of that man's service for Jesus Christ. But above all these, whether Old Testament prophets or New Testament writers, above all these, it is Christ Himself who paid the highest commendation to John the Baptist. He stated that He was the greatest of all the prophets. He emphasized that there was not a greater than John the Baptist. Uh, And as we think about that statement, not a greater than John the Baptist, we must remember that the secret of his tremendous greatness was his unique infilling by the Holy Spirit. When Gabriel announced to Zechariah concerning the birth of John the Baptist, he stated that John would be great in the sight of the Lord. And he went on to say that he would be great because he would be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And that, of course, was unique. That is something unparalleled with regard to the servants of the Lord in the Scriptures. And so, that was the hallmark of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. He was a man who was possessed with an unusual anointing of the Spirit of God, and without that anointing, his life and his ministry would be inexplicable. Indeed, the evidence of John's infilling by the Holy Spirit not only was that he was a preacher with power, but that he was also a preacher with a fearless honesty, demonstrated by his statement here in these verses 11 and 12, from which I want to preach to you this evening. In these words, in these verses, John addresses the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and others, the Sadducees, who came to his ministry, who, who came to hearken to John's ministry. You know, it's wonderful when we read these verses to notice what it actually says in one of those verses, that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to John the Baptist. He had a drawing power, And he was out in the wilderness preaching. And yet such was the impact of his ministry that people were drawn from cities and from the urban areas right out into the wilderness to listen to the preaching of the Word of God by this man. But what fearless preaching they actually heard. He neither flattered them nor was he fearful of them. But with unflappable nerve, he faced the crowds that gathered around him and he brought the message that was laid upon his heart. And the message on this occasion comes to a climax in these two verses, 11 and 12 of Matthew 3. And what he declared, he announced the impending appearance of Christ who was shortly to come and begin his own public ministry. And he, that is John, he, he, he proceeded then to describe the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to discharge. The language that John uses reveals that Christ's ministry would truly be unparalleled. It would be extraordinary. It would be supernatural. A ministry that only one who was the Messiah, who was the God-man, could actually discharge. To put it succinctly, when you look at these two verses, before us is a text which reveals that Christ's ministry would infallibly affect all men, either in salvation or in damnation. That's what John is saying in these two verses. That's a very solemn analysis of the Savior's ministry, what I've just said. But that's what John states in these verses, as we will see tonight. And yet it's always true, you know, Concerning all those who come under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is always the outcome. Those who believe and receive the Savior are saved. Those who refuse Him are lost. John says it here in so many words. We will see that as I've noted. We'll see that a little later on tonight. But this is always happening. In every gathering like this, in every gospel evangelistic meeting like this, this is the outcome. There are those over time who do come to the Lord and are saved by grace and who go on with God. There are others who refuse and some have refused for decades of their lives, have trampled underfoot the blood of the Lamb in refusing Jesus Christ, have done despite to the Spirit of grace in refusing Jesus Christ have resisted the Holy Ghost in refusing Jesus Christ. Even as Stephen told his hearers, as you find in Acts chapter 7, as he preached that powerful message on that very day when he was stoned to death. He spoke to them about refusing the Holy Ghost. And therefore, there is such a sin. Now, my friend, what a solemn and a terrible outcome there is for those who do so. so. And tonight, as I look with you at these verses, I trust that the Lord will impress this truth upon every heart in this meeting. Let's read the two verses again. John says, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, He will thoroughly thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let us consider a number of vital points from those verses. Number one, the power of the Lord's ministry. In verse 11, John announces the power of the Lord's ministry in this way. He says in that verse, that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Ghost. John makes that announcement in the context of actually emphasizing the powerlessness of his own ministry in contrast with Christ's ministry. You will notice there in those words, he says, I baptize you with water. Then he goes on to say, He that cometh after me, mightier than I... He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And notice how the contrast that comes out here revolves around the verb to baptize. John's point is that while he could and did baptize people with water, Jesus Christ was going to baptize people with the Holy Ghost and only he could do that. That's John's point. That's why He says, His ministry is greater than mine, mightier than mine. He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels, and we find this in John 4 and verse number 2, that Jesus Christ never baptized anybody with water. That's what it says. John 4, 2, Jesus Himself baptized not, but His disciples. The disciples administered the water baptism. The Lord never did it. And so the meaning there is clear. During His earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ never administered the ordinance of baptism to one person, leaving that to the disciples. Now, the question is why? And I believe this is the answer to underline that the purpose of His ministry was to baptize with the Holy Ghost and that He alone could do that. Yes, men could put water in people or dip them in water or whatever mode of baptism you care to think about. Men can do that. But no man can do what is written about here in this verse. No man can actually baptize a person with the Holy Ghost. That is the Lord's prerogative. Only Christ can administer What the ordinance, water baptism actually signifies, that is, only Christ can give sinners the Spirit of God. And by the way, that fact that Christ's power alone gives sinners the Holy Spirit excludes the notion, and indeed the lie, that the administration of an ordinance, whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, has any saving virtue. It doesn't. No ordinance, or there only are two in the New Testament, baptism and the ordinance of communion, no ordinance has any saving value. But what has saving value, what really matters, is for sinners to have administered to them the Spirit of the living God. There must be the application to sinners by Christ of the grace that is signified by the ordinance of baptism and that grace is wrapped up in the whole ministry and activity of the Spirit of the living God. When He comes upon sinners, He gets a hold of sinners and He draws them to 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 redeem them through Jesus' blood and to rescue them from all the effects of sin. And therefore, John took comfort from the truth that while he could not administer the Spirit, Jesus Christ could do so. May I say to those in this meeting tonight who are not saved, you need to understand what you desperately need. You need the power and the principle of new life infused into your heart and to your soul by the power of the Holy Ghost. That principle of life is spiritual. That principle of life is eternal. That principle of life is transforming. And may I say to you this evening, dear sinner, you yourself, Or no other human being has the power to produce this principle of new life. You cannot do it for yourself and no man can do it for you. Oh, the lies of preachers when they baptize people and they actually tell them that you have now been regenerated. Or when they lay hands on people and they actually tell them, Receive the Holy Ghost from the laying on of my hands. My friend, that is all a pack of lies. It's only Christ who's able to bring the Holy Spirit into a human heart. And He's the one who applies redemption and does the great and the marvelous in the saving work. I was just thinking about the verse in Job. Job 14, verse number 4. You know, it says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And then the answer is given, not one. The unclean thing there is the heart of man. And for an unclean heart to suddenly commence to bring forth that which is clean is impossible for the one who needs it. The sinner. And my friend, you can make resolutions, you can pray prayers, you can do all kinds of religious performances, but you are an unclean sinner, and you cannot bring something that is clean out of your heart by your own activity, because your heart is unclean, it's impure, it is filthy with sin, and you cannot bring anything clean out of it, and neither can anybody else do it for you. But think of the words of Psalm 49. And they're just as striking. Let me just read them to you, a couple of verses there. Psalm 49, verse number 7, it it says this, "'None of them can by any means redeem his brother.'" Now, it's talking about men, human beings, and using the word brother in that sense of your fellow human being. And it says there that none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God A ransom for him. And then verse 9 that he should live forever and not see corruption. I bring you these verses just to stress the fact that what you need, sinner, I cannot do it for you. No one else can do it for you. You may have a saved father or mother, you may have a saved wife or a saved husband. You may be one of those people who have who has saved children, but you're not yet saved. I'm telling you tonight that what you need is to be saved. What you need is to have the Holy Ghost living in your heart. But that's what salvation is really all about. When the Spirit of God enters and the work is done, you need that. But nobody can perform something for you that will bring that about. It's only the Lord that will do the work and is able to do the work as we find John saying here, using these words in this particular way. And sinner, you must look to the Lord as you sit in a gospel meeting once again. If you think and if you resolve, I am going to be saved, you need to look to the Lord to come tonight and work on your heart and give you the Holy Ghost. Because the Bible tells me those who become the sons of God, to them He gives the Holy Spirit. Galatians 4 makes it absolutely clear. Because ye are sons, He sends forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, sinner, you are without the Holy Ghost. Therefore, heaven you can never see. You can never enter, you're without the Holy Spirit. And so, what we're finding is that the Savior Himself, the Lord Jesus, is the one who wrought in people by the Spirit of the living God, and by the agency of the Holy Ghost. And that means that when the Holy Ghost comes, certain things begin to happen. This is how you will know if you've received the Holy Spirit, if you haven't truly born again, if you are a child of God. This is how you know. For example, there's illumination. It speaks here in this verse 11, He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, just taking these words again as I am doing tonight, what you have there is that the fact that fire is symbolic of what happens when the Holy Spirit enters into the hearts of sinners. And what does fire bring? Well, it brings many things, but it certainly brings illumination. It it creates light. And so what the Lord has shown you here is that the Holy Ghost symbolized by fire is the one who illuminates the soul. He takes away the darkness. He's the answer. In His illuminating power, He's the answer to the darkness of the soul. And what a dreadful darkness that is. It is not merely the negative ignorance of God; rather, even more than that, it's an active, uh, an active, and an energetic principle that's opposed to God. That's man's darkness. Oh yes, he's lost. He cannot understand. He does not really see spiritual things, and that's the passive side of it all. But on the active side. The sinner is energetically against God. He's against truth. He's against the gospel. My friend, that is why you are not saved yet. Because you are living a life in which you're trying to run the show yourself. And it's your will that matters to you. It's what you want. It's what you desire. It's where you want to go and the company with whom you want to associate. It's all those things that have to do with the flesh and the world And all of the corruption and all of the wickedness of this day and time, to whatever extent that might be in your life, I do not know. But there's no sinner who lives on this earth who does good and sins not. There's no one. And therefore you are guilty of following out the darkness of sin, the darkness of the ways of this old world. But you see, the gospel is a glorious message. As Paul shows us in Colossians 1 that Christ has come to translate people out of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. And man, I've been saying, man pursues the things of darkness. You know why? Because Christ Himself says in John 3.19, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And they will not come to the light They don't want the light. They want to remain under the cover of their own darkness. And that's the way you're living. And my friend, that is a way that leads you into all the details of the world's ways and the world's practices and the world's wickedness. But you find, along with that, that you struggle to understand spiritual things, don't you? You may even have said to another person, a Christian, you know, this matter of being saved, I can't understand that. Let me tell you, friend, that's what I would expect to hear from you. You can't understand it. You'll never understand what the gospel really means until you get to Christ, because Christ is the light. And therefore, the Holy Spirit's work is to illuminate the soul and take away the darkness and give an understanding of the Savior, open up your mind, give you this grasp of things that at this very moment elude you, and you cannot lay hold on these issues at all. But when the Spirit comes in, and, there, and this is the power of Christ, to baptize with the Holy Ghost, He brings illumination. He also does something else, taking the symbolism of the fire as a symbol of the Holy Ghost. He not only illuminates, but He inclines the mind and the heart in another direction. If you look at a fire, well, a fire, the flame goes up. It doesn't go down. It goes up. And there's the idea of a new inclination in the soul that the spirit enters. He begins through the work that He does there to cause the The uh, longings and the yearnings of that soul, that is the ability to long for things and yearn for things and desire things. He, 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 He brings about a situation where all those longings and yearnings and desires have got a new objective. And it's upwards. It is not down. He inclines the will to seek after God, to seek after Christ, to seek after truth. And that's what you need. You need to seek after the Lord and find deliverance from the grip and the bondage into which sin has brought you, causing you to reject the truth and to falter on in your intentions regarding spiritual matters. Sin's taking you away from the Lord. Sin will trip you up. Sin will make you halt and, and will make you falter. You may have these desires now and then. You may talk about the things of God, and then the old world comes rushing in, and sin again takes over, and you find that your heart is still bent, in the direction of that which is ungodly. And that will not change until your whole inner being is inclined in a new direction. And that comes as a Spirit moves. You know what I'm telling you, sinner? I'm telling you what you need. I'm not giving you commands tonight. I'm simply describing what you need. Illumination, inclination. That inclination comes and and things start to become clear, you will really see your wickedness. You will really see your danger. Are you looking for answers, perhaps? Are you searching for some remedy, some solution? Are you starting to think about your life? And maybe you're starting to realize, sinner, you know, you're saying to yourself, I need to do something about this. Because You're telling yourself, I've been living without God, without Christ for years and I don't know what a day will bring forth. Let me tell you, if you're thinking that way, I rejoice. But don't just stop there. Get right through to Christ. As I say what I've just said there, immediately there comes to mind a little story to tell you. I don't often tell stories or never have time to tell stories, but Um, And I lived in America. And one day I got a phone call from an elderly man who turned out to be 87 years old. And he said to me, I would like you to come and see me. He says, I've been listening to your radio program and I want to talk to you. And I went to see him. And he said, Here's what he said, I can remember it as well. He says, This born-again business, could you explain to me what that means? This man was a member of the local Presbyterian church, and for 50 years he had sat in that church, and he never heard the gospel once, not once. So I explained it to him, and then I opened my Bible again, and I said, I'm going to read and pray with you, and then I'm going to go. So I read and prayed, and he said, would you tell me again what that means? He said, I'm 87 years old. I don't know what tomorrow might bring for me. He says, tell me again. And I told him again. And that old man said to me afterwards, he says, you know, I want to be saved right now. And that man came to the Lord, and I often visited him. And God did a great work in his heart. You see, he begun to see that time was running out. The Spirit of God smote him and he was converted to the Savior. And my friend, it's time for you to take that step. Christ, by His Spirit, will give you the Holy Ghost to illuminate your mind, to incline your soul, and to bring you into that right standing with Almighty God through Christ's merit. You see, the Spirit always leads to Christ. He always leads to the cross. He leads to the blood. The work that He does is the work of applying the redemptive benefits of the death, yea, the life and the death, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord will do all that for you. Oh, if you'll only but seek Him and trust Him, I tell you tonight, He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and you'll start to live for God, and your life will be changed, and you become a new man, a new woman, a new young person, even a new boy or girl, serving the Lord the rest of your days. Look at verse 12 now and notice there, as we have noticed the power of the Lord's ministry. Notice the purging in Christ's ministry. As this moves into another arena altogether. Whose fan is in his hand, verse 12, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. He will thoroughly purge his floor. Now, regarding this purging, there is the floor mentioned. And what that means is, is taking the imagery of, of the, uh, the times in which John lived and Christ lived and so on. And back then there was what was called the threshing floor, it was just normally a flat rock wide and extensive, that served as a threshing floor and the grain was brought there and, and they took their flails and so forth and they began to thresh. That's the imagery. And here is what happened. Whenever the threshing took place, there was a purging in the sense that the chaff was separated from the wheat. That was the objective of the threshing, using the flail to separate the two. And so John brings this in here. And you will know from the Word of God uh, here and other, in other places that the floor here is symbolic really of what you might call the visible church because lying on this threshing floor there is wheat but there is also chaff and they're joined together. They're linked together. That is true. Have you ever have been well, maybe if, if you're not from an agricultural background, you will not know this, but when you cut down the corn or the barley, uh, you find that the, the, the grain and the, and the uh, chaff, are joined together, and there has to be a threshing activity to separate the two. And that's always, of course, been the case. That's the way it is, in other words. And so the floor represents the, the visible church, because in the visible church, you've got both wheat and chaff. That's what the Lord is showing here. And so what we're finding is that there has to be this uh, purging work of the Lord Himself whereby He will do this work of separation. He will bring it to pass. And so there is the floor in the words of John. That refers to that area that represents all those who maybe sit under the gospel in a meeting like this are actually associated with a visible church. Do you understand what I'm saying? You come to church, as we say. You sit in worship services. People might think, as they look at you, that that person must be a Christian. That person must belong to the Lord. But that's not altogether true, because you could come to the house of God all your life And if you haven't experienced what the first point brought out, that is, the Holy Spirit entering your heart and leading you to Christ, then you remain chaff. And so, what we're finding here is the day is coming when the Lord is going to purge. This is really a prophecy that you have in verse 12. Whose fan is in his hand, he will purge purge purges floor. The day is coming when the Lord's going to do this purging work. And in that, you can see not only the purging that He carries out with regard to the floor, but it mentions a fan whose fan is in His hand. Now, again, that is a, an instrument that was used in the threshing operation. It was some kind of an instrument that was as you waved it or you moved it. It caused wind to blow or air to move. And what happened was the farmer, the husbandman, would take a shovel in those days, no combines then, he would take a shovel and he would throw the grain up into the air and somebody would be there with a fan, this instrument, and he would fan as the grain was in midair and the chaff was blown away. Away. And so here is the purging. Here's what the Lord means. But you see, in His visible church, there's a mixture of believers and unbelievers. Those who are saved, those who aren't. I know that generally speaking, that's true of all society, of the world. In this world, saved and unsaved, wheat and tares, just speaking generally, sheep and goats. That's true. But my friend, the day is coming when this solemn, this awful separation is going to take place and the Lord will purge out all the chaff. The fan again, it says in verse 12, whose fan is in his hand. You know, that really struck me. The man with the fan in his hand is the man who's been given the responsibility of winnowing and I thought of John 5 and the verse number 22. And you know what it says? The Father hath committed all judgment into or unto the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one with the fan in His hand. He is the judge. And friend, He's coming to judge. He's coming to separate people, the one from the other. That goes on through the Gospels over and over again. Matthew 25, when He will come in the clouds, when He will come and sit upon the throne of His glory, He will separate mankind. And on the right hand there will be those who are called the sheep, on the left hand those who are called the goats. Or Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares, I've already mentioned that. Or the power of the good fish and the bad fish. Uh, The whole way through the Word of God, this comes out over and over and over again, the Lord is warning you, my dear friend, that you're, going to, you're not going to be able always to shelter under the coattails of a Christian. You're not going to be able to go through and finally enter into heaven because you have had a saved father or mother or brother or sister or whatever. It just will not happen. The day of judgment will arrive and this purging will take place and the Lord will purge out the chaff. And what an awful day that will be. That brings me to the last point here. The prospect of the Lord's ministry. Look at the latter part of verse 12. And gather his wheat into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. There is the prospect that is set down here of this ministry of Jesus Christ. The prospect is that of the Lord committing all men to their eternal state. He gathers the wheat into the barn. He casts the chaff into unquenchable fire. What you have in those words is a presentation of the only two places that will hold all souls forever, heaven and hell. Do you understand, my friend, that as we meet here tonight, we meet on the 8th of October 2023, we may never meet again. I don't know what will happen by this time next week. But I know this. Taking this congregation, just as project our minds to the end of time, to the day that the Lord is showing us here, that day of purging and this awful prospect, either heaven or hell. Project your minds down the road to that, down the corridor of time to that day is coming. And all here tonight, are going to be either in heaven or in hell. Some in heaven, some in hell, however you want to put it. There's no other place. There's no in-between stage. There's nothing about getting another chance when the Lord comes back. Nothing, nothing like that. It's very final. It's eternally set. That's what the Lord's showing you here in this kind of language He says he will gather the wheat, as it says there in verse 12. Gather his wheat into the garner. His wheat into the gather, into the garner. You know, that word gather, I looked it up. I'd never looked at it before until I was preparing this message. And you know what it means literally? To lead together. You take all those who are called the wheat. That's all Christians. And here's this wonderful day uh, going to come. and, And the Lord is going to... Gather! He's going to lead together all those who comprise the wheat. Just think about it. Streams of people from all time and all nations being led together into glory of all colors and classes and so on. And what a wonderful day because they all go to the same heaven and they'll all be for on the same ground, the ground of the blood and the finished work. And they'll all be there to sing the praises of the Lamb forevermore. They're led together. And the thought is not one will be missing. Not one grain of wheat will be missing. Not one sheep will be missing. Not one good fish will be missing. All will be there. And then the other word that struck me and I looked that up too, garner. It could be translated barn, but literally the word garner means to. Put away. Put away. What it means is it signifies safety and preservation as in the granaries of the Jews or any person involved in this kind of business where grain was stored. And so it was all all gathered up and brought together into the garner of God. Put away. Safely. Nothing to touch the saints. Nothing to annoy them. Nothing to grieve them. Nothing to disturb them. But put away, not only for years, indeed, but rather forever. Put away forever with the Lord. The Old Hymn says, Forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. And you know, a few more years shall rule. And every child of God in this gathering tonight will be a way home. Way home. And the Lord will come someday. And what a gathering that will be. So there's the prospect of heaven with Christ. Listen, sinners, the awful prospect here of hell without Christ. For it says it. He says there, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's why I read Psalm 1 tonight, the last verses of that Psalm. The ungodly are not so. They're not like the, the, the person in the first few verses. The, the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who sits not in the way of the sinner and, or the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the Lord's Word and the Lord's law and He brings forth fruit. He's a man of God. He's a child of God. He's any Christian, in other words. But then there comes the contrast. The ungodly are not so. Then it says, but are like the chaff, which the wind driveth away. My friend, the wind in that little psalm is the wind of judgment that will blow with this terrific force someday and drive sinners away into darkness, drive them away into hell, drive them away into the caverns of the damned, and they will be lost forever, and they'll be in the unquenchable fire. Oh, how often the Lord speaks of that fire. The fire that shall never be put out. See, the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Sin is against God. This this must happen. This prospect will be realized. The Lord will have a sweet with him in the garner. But the lost, the chaff, will fall into that fire, into that punishment, that eternal punishment, and receive their due reward. So how does this strike you tonight? Where are you, sinner? You see, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And among all other signs that a person has the Spirit, I've mentioned some of them tonight, there's one chief one. A person who receives the Holy Spirit comes to trust in Christ. And Christ alone. The Spirit does not lead a person to trust in the baptismal font or tank or whatever. The Spirit does not lead anybody to rest in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. The Spirit leads people to a person and to the work that He has done. And if you love not Christ, if He's not your trust and your hope, then I tell you, you have not the Spirit of God if you love the world, rather, your sin, you have not the Spirit of God. If you continue to live that way and you die that way, you will be lost forever. And you will enter into this awful, this awful situation that is prospectively brought before us, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let us bow together in prayer. Let's just still ourselves before the Lord and wear His feet and give our thoughts and our minds to what we have considered reverently and quietly just close out this meeting. It would be my, my joy to talk with you, my friend. Maybe you would like that. Maybe you're looking for some help Spirit, you'll help. Do not go away, but rather this night, seek the Lord while He may be found. And I'll be glad to help you in that regard. And may you come and this night call upon the name of the Lord. And our Father and our God, we pray that the Blessed Spirit will do His work, that He will move, that He will get a hold of souls in this gathering and draw them to Calvary, draw them to the Christ of God. And may they enter into that blessed union with the Savior. May they know the the coming of the Holy Spirit into their hearts, bringing with them all the gifts and all the graces bought by Christ's blood. And, O Lord, may a, a blessed work be done. Hear and answer prayer. And be with us now as we part. May the Spirit woo, may He draw, may He bring souls to the Lamb. And we will give Thee all the glory, all the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.